0: I don't know if you do. You find that in like, do you teach also, or were you at yes, one I do. point? Yes. Do you find that yeah, with like? I mean,
1: I, I teach uh, at a middle school, and so we have a we have a rule that they're not even allowed to bring phones into the classroom. Um, that said, we occasionally have to confiscate them. So, <laughs> from day to day, there's a, there's a little bin in the office with with you know three or four cell phones at any given time.
0: Wow, I can't imagine. I didn't have my first phone until high, like halfway through high school. But now mm. kids in middle school are having phones.
1: Oh yeah,
0: yeah. Oh geez.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's uh, the the next the next frontier is the is the smartwatch because like you can't really tell them, you know, take your watch off before class. It's, just bit, so, uh,
0: it's crazy. Wow. Um, let me. Uh, I'll give you a a quick introduction, Sean, and for everybody out there, thank you very much for tuning in and listening. My name is Chris, this is chi Tash, and today I have a great guest with us. Please welcome Sean Munger. And Sean, if you can please introduce yourself and give a little summary of what you do.
1: Thanks. Well, uh, thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. Uh, my name is Sean Munger, and I'm a historian. Um, I'm known at this time primarily for my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Sean Munger. Um, But I teach history courses both online and in person, so I'm a teacher. Uh, I've written several books, a couple, actually most fiction, believe it or not, although I have written some uh, historical books. Um, I am an academically trained historian. I have a Ph.D. in environmental history. Uh, Before going back to school to get that advanced degree, um, which is my first love, was history, uh, I was a lawyer. And I practiced commercial real estate law in the pacific northwest for a number of years so I've worn a number of different hats uh, over the course of of my career Um, but I really enjoy history and engaging people with it and uh, talking about historical narratives and I seem to have uh, found a niche on youtube Um, I've also run some podcasts in my in my past as well um Years ago, I produced a podcast, historical podcast called Second Decade, which is about the 18-teens, the second decade of the 19th century that was tangentially related to study I was doing at the PhD level. Um, And then I also had a podcast about movies uh, called Green Screen, which is about environmental themes in popular movies um, because I am an environmental historian. Um, a lot of that was his, historically based. So if you uh, listen to green screen, which is fairly obscure and there hasn't been a new episode uh, published in a uh, long time, but uh, there's some environmental history that you'll pick up from that as well. So so that's uh, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm.
0: And I definitely want to ask you uh, about some of the things that you just mentioned. Uh, one thing I wanted to dwell on really quick regarding, we were talking about in your classroom with phones and sp- and watches. Have you had any sort of interactions with students using, who use a ChatGPT?
1: Um, I haven't really because that is fairly new, and the school where I teach, we we kind of de-emphasize written assignments in part for those reasons. Um, so I'm not—I don't really have much opportunity to to see GPT. I have used it myself uh, in a just to, you know, develop ideas and things like that. I've never published, obviously, anything either on my channel or anywhere else that is AI-generated. I generally distrust AI, but um, but I am aware that uh, that that is an issue among among teachers these days, and they're having a really hard time dealing with it.
0: I, I was, I, Yeah, I was actually going to ask, too, if in your experience using it, have you come across instances, especially with history, where you've noticed it getting stuff wrong? Because in my career, and I'm a software developer, and mm-hmm. I've asked it some questions, actually, that it's got wrong. And it kind of mm-hmm. surprised me, like, oh, wow, that's not right. I, have you ever experienced that?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, it happens all the time. It just it strings words together on the spur of the moment basically and the problem with with AI is it doesn't think very deeply about anything that it's talking about um, it just comes up with the best what it thinks are the best words to say at that particular instant and each instant in time that it's operating is disconnected from everything else that it's that has come before that so you can't really have a deep, You can simulate a deep conversation with it, but you can't really have one because it's not thinking on an analytical level, really, in any
0: way. Mm -hmm. The previous guest I had on, we were also talking about uh, ChatGPT, and they do a podcast about uh, science and technology. And they actually informed me of another sort of uh, AI tool called Pi, which is kind of like ChatGPT, but it's more of a conversation with an AI and to like, I think you had mentioned this just a little bit ago, like developing ideas and it's kind of meant for that, like having a conversation with an AI to f- flush things out. And the, the cool thing about it is it actually can hook up because it's a mobile app. You can actually speak to it uh, <clears throat> versus chat GPT right now. You just type and, I thought that was really cool. I started using it, not the voice part, but just typing to it. And it is different than ChatGPT. Like, it really does seem like you're having a conversation with it, which is kind of cool. But, yeah, I can't imagine going to school right now having these AI tools at your disposal. Uh, Back when I was in school, it was still you know, we were using spark notes and cliff notes. Now I feel like (laughs) it's just a whole nother level now. And it must be challenging.
1: Yeah, it is. And when I started my PhD uh, program and started teaching college students uh, in, this was in the early 20 teens, you know, about 2010 or whatever. And uh, there were still students at that point who thought that Wikipedia was a secret weapon and so we, we would have to, like when we had a, an exam or a paper or something, we would have to at least sort of browse the main Wikipedia pages of uh, the subjects that we were looking at just to, to see if we could spot. And, and there's, you know, we would have assignments uploaded through Blackboard or whatever software that would often check that. But that at that time, that was like kind of, that was still working its way through the system. Uh, so it's this is this is sort of the same. You know, same crap, different day. It's, it's just another, you know, computer, computer tool.
0: hmm Pivoting slightly to your career and what you've studied with history, was there a particular, like, person or historical event that caused you to, like, really fall in love with this area of study and choosing to pursue it?
1: Well, I've always been interested in it, um... <clears throat> When I was in my uh, my graduate study, of course, I had to choose, a, I did a master's first and then a PhD built on that, but, and I had to choose like a dissertation topic. And I had recalled something from something that I'd read, you know, years and years and years ago back in, oh, I don't know, middle school at some point, And it was an article of some kind, but it was about the year without summer. Uh, which all I remembered about it was there was some kind of weird alteration in the weather and it was like snowing in June in New England. This was in 1816. And there were all these weird weather effects. And I was very curious when I got to the college level and then eventually the graduate level that like very few people had written about that. It was always sort of like, a it was on the reader's digest level of history it's like oh wow this this weird thing happened isn't that strange and then you move on and i got very interested in that event um and so i started when i was casting about for topics i started researching seeing what research there was on it and there was very little so that event really pulled me in because it was kind of untrammeled ground i mean historians hadn't really looked at it scientists had looked at it because of the it was caused by a volcanic eruption Um, but what I discovered was that it was not one event; it was not one year; it was a it was about a ten year period of uh, fairly intense global climate change that was volcanically induced, and there were a lot of different effects to it and a lot of different dimensions that people hadn't really talked about. So that really kind of drew me in, and that ended up being the the subject of my dissertation.
0: In you mentioned earlier too that you have a law degree as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you end up, did you practice law for a time?
1: I, I did, yes, for, for a number of years. Yeah.
0: Wow. And uh, what particular area?
1: I did mostly uh, commercial real estate. So I, I was a business lawyer, I was not a litigator in any way. Um, but I did mostly commercial real estate and some general business law. At the very beginning of my legal career, I was working uh, with a tax attorney, so I did a little bit of tax work. Um, And then toward the end, after I got out of uh, graduate school, I tried to sort of combine my historical knowledge with my legal expertise. And for a while I was a consultant uh, on issues of climate change because during my dissertation I became very, Interested in and knowledgeable about the history of uh, climate and weather in general, and of course our current uh, episode of man-made, you know, human-caused global warming—the history of that and how that developed, how that was discovered, and that sort of Um, thing—and so I had kind of a period where I was doing some consulting work, sort of based on that, but also kind of practicing law on the side. It didn't really fit together that well, Um, and then. Uh, pandemic era i i kind of just went out of lo- the law profession entirely um no with no regrets about that uh, and so i've been focusing on history pretty much since then
0: i i have to now add you to the list of a long it's a growing list of uh former like attorneys or lawyers that i've interviewed and it's crazy um i remember like the the second interview i ever did was a. Um, an author, he, he wrote, um, fiction novels and he was an attorney. Then I, I interviewed another, um, another woman author. She wrote a book about beer, but she was a former lawyer too. And yeah, crazy. Um, and then my friends, a bankruptcy attorney, and I'm just surrounded by, uh, everybody, (laughs) lots of people with legal.
1: It's been sort of a truism in my life that every former attorney that I know is much happier than every attorney that I know. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells you something about the profession.
0: Now, when did the, the thought about um, starting this YouTube channel and podcasting, like how, how did that come about?
1: Well, it was in, uh, in and shortly after my graduate study, um, the podcast came about. I started Second Decade in 2016, so it was toward the end of my uh, toward the end of my study. And what I was finding, I was writing my dissertation, and I had done a lot of research in various archives and things like that. And I had found so many interesting because really my the the episode of, of volcanic climate change that resulted in the year without summer really stretched over an entire decade. So I was really studying that whole decade of the 18 teens, basically. And I had so much material that I couldn't really fit into my dissertation, but was still really good and interesting stuff that people hadn't known about. And I've always had a creative side. And this is when kind of DIY podcasts were just sort of ramping up and it was easy at that time to do that. And so I, I'm like, well why don't I start a podcast and I'll do an episode about something that it's not in my dissertation but that's really interesting that occurred during this period. And so I started doing that and it became uh, somewhat somewhat popular, um, which surprised me. And uh, throughout this whole period I for I think I started my blog, originally in like 2011 or 2012 and it was originally a way to promote my my novels my fiction books but I kind of quickly sort of outran that model and just started just writing blog articles about whatever struck my fancy a lot of history a lot of you know various things and uh, that developed eventually developed uh, a, a pretty stable core readership and I had done some articles that were particularly uh, a few that got a, a lot more hits than everything else and in I guess 2017 or so about kind of the end toward the end of my my uh, uh, PhD program I was talking to a fellow graduate student and he's like yeah hey, you should start a YouTube channel." He's like, yeah, I started one and it's, it's fun. You know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's a good way to kind of blow off steam and that kind of thing. And uh, this, this guy, actually, I subscribed to his channel. Uh, It's called uh, games with Jeff. He hasn't even really updated it in a very long time, but he's the one who out, who spurred me to start a YouTube channel and kind of look at it in at least a semi-systematic way. So I started working with that, I guess, about a year after I had left i had gotten my phd and i was like well what kind of you know obviously i should do some historical videos Uh, and i thought well what i'll do is i'll make a couple of videos based on my most popular blog articles i'll just do video versions of those because the blogs are have already been written for a long time the script already exists i might as well just see what i can do so that kind of became, and, and my most popular blog article at that time was about the uh, the Oak Island, I'm going to put it in quotes, mystery. It's not a mystery, but it's sort of, sort of a myth, the idea that there's treasure buried on this small, or something of value buried on this small island off the coast of Nova Scotia. Uh, I wasn't even aware until I made the video version that there was a a, a tv show about this that was explaining that of course on history channel but you know a very uh non-serious um show about this and i i think that was probably the reason why those video and i i it, i had to split the uh the subject into like four four videos because i didn't have the the thought to do a long one yet. So they're all, you know, 15, 20 minutes long or whatever. So I did that one. I also did one that was a popular article I had about, um, the 1960s, 70s cult leader, uh, Carlos Castaneda, the new age, kind of new age author and cult leader. And when he died in the nineties, he had a very small insular group of women who were following him basically his acolytes basically witches they called themselves that and they all disappeared within 48 hours of his death he died of cancer and then they disappeared these women disappeared years later they found the bones of one of them out in the desert but the other the others have never been found so i did an interesting um article about that which got some hits and so i turned that into a youtube video and that uh, got some popularity as well. So it was just a very kind of slow ramp up. Um, and I just started using, because I, I switched blog, switched the servers of my blog in I think 2018 or 2019. Uh, I had been on WordPress, you know, the free version of WordPress, which is how all the bloggers start. Um, but I didn't realize that I couldn't take, like my subscribers to that blog would not transfer over when I change servers. So I, my blog was dead instantly. I mean, I didn't have, it was just tumbleweeds. So I started doing videos instead, and that's kind of where that got started.
0: Oh, very cool. Uh, when you look out there at other YouTube channels that are doing the same type of videos, like historical video essays, are there any that uh, you watch that you really like and that you kind of tried to kind of emulate, like, their style into your videos?
1: Um, There's some that I, obviously, there's some that I like. Um, As far as emulating, um, I'm not sure that I've really done that consciously. Um, When I started teaching uh, middle school, I I, I teach in a number of, I'm sort of a freelance, kind of freelance teacher, basically. So I'm not, like, a day-to-day classroom teacher, um, I'm kind of sort, of sort of more of a subject matter expert, and uh, people or institutions or whatever will bring me in for a series of lectures or a limited class or you know something like that. Um, but I got this gig teaching history at a uh, at the middle school level at a charter school, and I found, of course, I had never been trained. All the teaching I'd done in my uh, graduate program was of you know college age kids. And I had done also a lot of presentations, particularly with senior citizens. So I had never really worked with, you know, kids. Kids, I mean, like you know, younger, younger kids. So that was a trial and error process. And what I found, and this kind of goes, I think, back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, where uh, kids will watch a screen sort of with with generally rapt attention, depending on what's being shown but they'll generally pay more attention to a screen than they will a live person which is different than than when i was in school but you know that's fine times change so i'm like well gee i should you know incorporate some i should find some videos out there and bring those into the classroom and they'll be more you know they'll pay attention uh especially if they're kind of funny or they're you know they don't have to be like really kid focused but at least something to kind of, kind of fire their attention and something that I couldn't do in the classroom itself. So I started, that's kind of where I started surfing YouTube for historical content that was appropriate for my class. And there's a wonderful teacher. Uh, he works in New York city and the name of his the name of his channel is Mr. Betts class. And he started out, I guess in the mid teens, Uh, but he plays guitar and sings. And so what he would do, at least at the beginning of his channel, he would take, he would like parody popular songs and change the lyrics to be about historical events. And he would do these little music videos where, and eventually it, it got fairly elaborate where he would dress up in costumes and he would have green screen stuff behind him and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, but he did and he focused on American history and I found that was absolutely perfect for my sixth graders who were that's the level where they learned American history. And that was just a quantum leap forward where I was able to sh- start showing Mr. Bett's songs in the classroom and like I'm talking about the Civil War or the up- upcoming the coming of the Civil War, what was happening or whatever. And oh, we're gonna see this uh, this song about uh, like he has one about the John Brown raid. Which is hilarious, by the way. Uh, And the kids just love that. And they really engage with that. So that's kind of where I started looking at other historians on YouTube. And there's a number of others that will use different, you know, cartoons or clips or, you know, whatever. Um, And some of them, some are obviously better than others. Uh, But I did like the fact that there was a lot of engagement and a lot of, you know, dynamic stuff uh, going on there. There's another teacher who I believe was a, uh, was he elementary or he may have been middle school, but uh, uh, his name is Mr. Beat, not Mr. Beast, but Mr. Beat. Um, and he's a, uh, he's a teacher from Kansas and he has a channel that I admire very much. So, you know, there are people, other people out there who were, who are doing this. I, I feel like I'm kind of a late comer because my, you know, my stuff didn't even get noticed until a couple of months ago, but um, I know Mr. Beat a little bit. Um, and rub shoulders with a couple of others, but, um, so there is sort of a community out there.
0: Yeah. I, I, I like Mr. Beat as well. I've seen a lot of his content. Um, really enjoy watching his videos as well with, with the topics that you choose for your channel. Um, I guess, let me ask you this first. How do you choose topics for your channel? And like, what, what is that process? Like, do you just, is kind of anything up for grabs or do you tend to gravitate towards like certain historical events over others?
1: Well, it's a lot about just sort of what strikes my fancy and what, what I feel interested to kind of put my head in for a while. Um, Especially since I've been doing the very long form videos which I started my first one of that back in the summer of 2022. So usually it's a topic that I know something about and have uh, some interest in, usually something that I've taught before, or at least have some kind of material compiled about, so I don't have to start from scratch. Um, I will often choose one that has a topic that has either kind of an interesting personality or some subject that people don't really know about. It's not really, you know, top of the charts as far as, you know, the greatest hits. It might be on the fringe of something or or else a well-known topic that I can do in a sort of a different way that people haven't seen before. Like the, the Manson video, for example, would be a good, good example of that or something that I have also picked topics where particularly for the, for, the, for the deep dives that I don't think have really been done as well on YouTube as, uh, as I, I think they could be. Uh, so that was sort of the genesis of the Iran-Contra video, where most of the videos about it are you know 20 minutes tops, and they, they're so surface level, and they have to be because to do a subject that complex in 20 minutes, you're leaving automatically 90 percent of what happened out. of of the story. And so I'm like, gee, well, what if I did a a really deep dive and got into the personalities and the deal and how it worked and the blow blow by blow and all this kind of stuff. Nobody's done that. Um, There was another one that I I did. um, And I did this partially for my one of my classes. But I was teaching and this was at the seventh, seventh grade level. And I wanted to talk about the um, uh, there was a series of wars. In the 7th century between the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Sassanid Empire, which very few people, it's not, again, not a greatest hits type of thing, but it's very important historically because there was this long series of wars. Byzantium eventually kind of wiped out the Persian Empire, but they were so exhausted from having done that, that they were easy prey for the rise of uh, Islam, which was... Uh, being founded as this series of wars was playing out and the weakness of the Byzantine Empire in the, in the wake of this conflict was what enabled the rapid rise of Islam in the mid 7th century that's a super important story that has a lot of connections to the modern world and I was looking for a video to show in my class about it and found one from a from a fairly well-regarded channel but it was it was dull, at least in my opinion it was dull because it was a lot of maps and a lot of this army went here and this you know emperor went here and whatever and then there was a revolt in this city and you know this kind of stuff. and I'm like, you know what I could do better than that. So I, d- I made a video of my own on that topic um, about the uh, Byzantine uh, sasanian war. and so that was a why I chose that topic was because it wasn't it hadn't really been done in a way that i thought was uh appropriate for the class for my class and i made that video specifically to show in my class uh, but also to put on youtube of course so so a lot of it's kind of personal preference a lot of it's what i've studied what i what i like uh what i feel like i can add something to and what i also feel is underrepresented uh, on youtube
0: now as far as the uh the research that goes into these topics, what, what do you do for that? Are you mainly looking at, uh, books, encyclopedias, et cetera, or are you using a lot of online sources as well?
1: Usually I'll start with a book or a series of, a, a, a group of books. So, uh, like right now it will be out, uh, by, I'm sure by the time this, uh, uh, this interview goes live, but uh, at the m- time I'm recording this, I'm working on a- another deep dive, and this one is on the fall of the great monarchies during the early 20th century of the World War One era, so Habsburgs, Hohenzollerns, um, Romanovs, the Ottoman Empire, and uh, the Heisenjira of China. And I started really because I, I chose that because one of my favorite history books is, in fact, this one, which is called *The Fall of the Dynasties*. Very old book, written in the '60s, but I remember reading this years ago and just being absolutely captivated by it. And I've read some other books about topics similar to that, like you know, Robert K. Massey was a very popular historian in the '60s and '70s. He wrote *Nicholas and Alexandra* about the Romanovs and. There's uh, some others who've written really great books, you know, Barbara Tuchman, The Guns of August, about World War One and the causes of World War One. So I've sort of had my head in that space for a long time. And uh, so usually I'll start with a, a group of books and then kind of write a script or, or an outline about what I want to cover and then write the script using the books mainly as, as main sources. Uh, often there are different things that I have to chase down, you know, details and things like that. Um, Iran Contra was actually very interesting because I started with um, one of my main sources was a book that had been written in the late 80s, um, which I had never really seen another uh, book done about it that was as engaging as that one. So that was a main source. So I reread that. But I had to go to various other sources to track down some other aspects of the story and ended up using as another source there's a there was a great book that was published in the early 90s full of documents so it was like primary source documents and so i used that as a source and in fact in the iran contra video on the screen at times you'll see like actual images of the actual Memos that Oliver North wrote. There was a, you know, kind of a smoking gun memo that exposed the diversion of funds to the Contras. So you'll see that on screen. Um, that kind of thing. Um, when I decided to do the Amway Tools cult video, which is kind of an outlier in in what what I've done, uh, but that was a project that uh, came out of a couple of books that I read. Uh, From previous, you know, ex Amway distributors who were writing these books, mostly in the 80s and 90s, trying to expose what was going on. And I happened to find a source again, this is online, uh, but there was a wonderful source. If you've seen that video, the centerpiece of it is there's a an audio recording of a meeting, a very contentious meeting that occurred at a hotel in Miami. This is in 1983. Basically, the Amway tools cult There were two sides within the multi-level marketing business who were dueling for supremacy in the early '80s. And there was they they had basic. It was like something out of The Godfather. They had like this this you know hoods Congress where they were trying to figure out what to do. And there was a tape recording of that entire meeting, which was just astonishing. And as soon as I heard that and listened to it, I'm like, this has to be the centerpiece of this video. Um, So I do occasionally use online sources and particularly documents and things like that. Um, A major, major help in my research has been archive.org, or at least was until the ridiculous lawsuit filed against them by the publishing industry, which is just so many degrees of wrong that it's not even, it's just not even comprehensible why uh, they would have done this. Well, I guess it's comprehensible money, I suppose. But um, in response to that lawsuit, archive.org has taken down a lot of books that were on their site and, and preserved in their archives, uh, which has really limited the reach of, of, of my research where if I would find mention of a book in another book, I would often go find that exact book on archive.org and be able to look up a, a citation or a document or whatever. That process is now truncated because pending the result of this lawsuit they've taken down so much stuff. there's still a lot of stuff you can find um, So yeah that's kind of how a uh, sort of a long version of how I how I do my sources
0: Now with your with the videos or the the topics that you choose, do you ever face any criticism or backlash from your videos that like you see like perhaps like in the youtube comment section
1: oh sure yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) absolutely so yes um last summer i did uh, a two-part series on the jfk assassination um and this is of course a vector for controversy but it's I was motivated to do that. again. I, I had a, a main source that I was using which was uh, Vincent Bugliosi's uh, book Reclaiming History which I had read years ago. It came out in I believe, 2007. It's literally 1700 pages uh, but I read it and was very very impressed uh, with just how cogently it laid out the facts that it's absolutely beyond question that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. There was no conspiracy and that shocks many people. Even even to say that, so many people just that's just beyond the pale. It's like, well, I mean, that's like asserting that that you know gravity doesn't exist. I mean, it, it, that the conspiracy theory or some version of it has been so internalized in our society that it it's almost heresy to speak of uh, anything uh, anything else. So I did that video, and of course, that has generated a lot of, uh, on a daily basis, I, I get so many abusive comments, um, that which I just you know leave in the moderation queue mostly. But there's, you know, oh, you must be a CIA agent, you know, stuff like that. and, <laughs> um, Or, you know, I heard that there was a bullet that was found, and then, and, and, you know, and like all these just non-facts, but like factoids that people believe, or have come to believe, and so there's lots and lots of... Uh, of that um the carlos castaneda video has also been controversial um and i did that one in 2018 what's interesting about that is the main focus of the video is is as i said about specifically the women who had followed him who disappeared in the wake of his death and uh, there was a really great source a book written by um Uh, A woman named Amy Wallace, she's now passed away, but she was kind of in the orbit of Castaneda's uh, coven of witches, so to speak, and she was far enough detached from it that she didn't follow the others. And what probably happened, what we think is they wandered into the desert of uh, Southern California and committed ritual suicide is basically that's the leading theory as to what happened to them. She did not do that and ended up writing this book about her life with Castaneda and her life in this cult. And that was really one of the main sources that I used for that video. Um, The thing about Castaneda is that he wrote these very well-regarded New Age books in the late 60s, early 70s. He claimed, and he he wrote the first of these books when he was pursuing a doctorate degree in anthropology at UCLA. And this was in like 1968. So he claimed that he had uh, met a a Native American shaman somewhere in the desert of Mexico and had gone on these great spiritual journeys involving drugs and altered states of consciousness and this kind of thing. And he actually got a PhD in anthropology from UCLA, essentially fraudulently because – they asked him to produce his field notes and his sources and he couldn't produce them because of course he had made it all up there's also a cultural creation aspect uh, to this castaneda was a a quite accomplished con man and then eventually after his run of success with with these new age books that were published mostly in the 70s uh, then he became sort of this insular cult leader So I tell obviously his, his story there, but most of the pushback on that video has been from people who uh, loved his books and insist that he's not a con man. It's like, Oh, well, he's absolutely true. You know, you know, everything he wrote was true. And, you know, you're just trying to tear him down. It's a shame that, you know, you have such a hole in your life that you feel like you have to attack, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And they completely missed the point because the point of the video is about the women who disappeared. And yet, Mo- the vast majority of the pushback is about the claim and it's i mean it's absolutely supported that castaneda was a con man and that his experiences were not real they were made up but so many people are focused on him and on and and that's the big deal for them is is trying to refute uh the the debunking of castaneda and the substance of what he wrote and they they really they don't even really get past that to talk about what happened to the women themselves. There's a few that do, but uh, so most of the pushback is been about that. Um, what's very interesting is uh, the uh, sort of the, the the comments on the Oak Island videos, because when I first when I first started to get popular it's apparently when the TV show was at the the height of its popularity. I think it's called the curse of Oak Island. I've, I've actually yeah. never seen it. It's just, it's such, it's such worthless. It adds nothing whatsoever to the study of uh, of Oak Island. Not that there's really anything to study. It's a scam. But, um, when the show was popular, I would get a lot of pushback on that. And people say, Oh, well they found the flood tunnels and, you know, they've, f- you know, they found Roman artifacts in the swamp that proven it. And, you know, it's proof that the Knights Templar were there and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I, in fact, on some occasion, I would get hate mail. I would get literally, you know, emails from people who were fans of the show, uh, who would say, you know, why are you tearing down, you know, these, these people who are looking for treasure and you got all your facts wrong. And this show's what a mockery our education system is. If they gave you a PhD and you know, you don't know the first thing about it and all of this kind of stuff. I don't get that anymore because the show is now, I I guess I, somebody told me recently that it's still on the air, which I thought it had gone off the air years ago. Um, I didn't even know it was still on the air, but, but now like now that it's past its peak of popularity, basically people realize that it's just made up. Um, so that's been very interesting, like sort of the, the pivot on uh, on that. And again, when I talk about like negative response, uh, it's really only a, a a fairly small minority of uh, people who have pushed back against it. Because even even the JFK videos, which are the most uh, uh, probably the most controversial, I'm just looking them up now. Mm-hmm. Um, but even uh, even the most controversial one has got you know eighty six percent likes. So you know the vast majority of people who have who have seen this stuff um, do like it. It's just that there are you know there are outliers, people who have different opinions, who are generally more motivated to comment. I think than many of the the people who who don't have that visceral, visceral reaction to it. So that's what I'd say about that.
0: Do, do you think Is it, or how difficult is it to like take somebody who like truly believes in Oak Island or, um, JFK or anything else and have them kind of steer them towards the direction of, Hey, this is actually, this is what it actually is. And how difficult is that? And is that worth doing sometimes if the person just like won't even budge on their viewpoint?
1: Um, it's extraordinarily difficult and generally it is not worth doing. Um, the people who are entrenched in sort of alternate narratives of history is really what, what this is. Uh, there's really nothing you could, I mean, they're not interested in facts, you know, they're, and I, I find this across you know, there, there are themes I think in in many of my videos, not all of them, but I, I have always been interested in what I call organized deception. That's just a term that I made up, but when somebody, and this would be you know scams or cults or conspiracy theories or whatever, where somebody or some group of people decides affirmatively to deceive other people for some specific objective, usually money, but Carlos Castaneda falls in that group. Uh, Oak Island falls in that group because uh, what Oak Island was, it was actually a scam from the 1850s. Oh, wow. And it was, a, it was a scam to defraud investors at a supposed treasure hunt. So we didn't even know who the original scammers were, but their modus operandi was to make up a lot of bizarre claims about this island and then sell shares in their you know treasure company to fund an expedition to go recover the treasure and then of course they got their funds and skipped town but the legend that they spun in order to trick investors took on a life of its own and it came down through popular culture and is now you know the scam has reinvented itself and it's like the history channel is a scam you know and, and the show is a scam because basically the creators of that show i don't really know very much about them except it's clear that they have sold the history channel on this narrative which is not true and they've been making money from it in much the same way that these scammers did in the 1850s so uh with my interest in organized deception and i've always been interested in why do people fall for these things why do they believe why do they you know what's the pathology of these these deceptions Um, But if people are convinced that a deception is real, they'll do almost anything to avoid confronting that reality. Um, I find this with the the Amway Tools Cult video as well, because uh, Amway, of course, multi-level marketing is a deception and a scam, but there's so much material out there about how they hook people and why they continue to believe and the narratives that they posit and there's some really wonderful stuff out there uh there was the the documentary a couple of years ago about uh lula roe that was uh for a while and various other uh, nexium was was big in the news about the time of the pandemic again same thing so when you encounter someone who is still sort of really deeply in that uh in that milieu there, they didn't get there by reasoned understanding of the facts. You know, you don't you don't join Amway because you've looked at it and you think it's a good business opportunity. You join it because of you know whatever emotional factor or you're uh, motivated by their sales pitch or you know whatever, and you you justify it to yourself well this is a good thing because of x y and z Um, and i think once you get into that sort of mindset it's very difficult to get people out so my videos that are about organized deception are not geared toward undoing that damage i'm not trying to get people out of Amway or to get them to stop believing in Carlos Castaneda. My videos are not for the people who believe in those things. They're for people who are interested in how these things work and what the history is of them. Um, I have had some uh, many, many years ago, actually in the uh, uh, the era when 9-11 conspiracies were uh, really big. Um, I dabbled in the uh, the debunking community online, which has its own uh issues of toxicity and and that sort of thing uh, which is eventually why I left but about you know 2006 or so which was the the high watermark of you know 9/11 trutherism um of course I encountered online a lot of people who were deeply believed in these conspiracy theories and it's eventually it becomes pointless to argue with them because you know they're never going to understand what the facts really are or they're not going to accept what are the facts as opposed to a fake fact that they have convinced themselves to believe so yes it is very very difficult to get people out and and it's generally not worth doing uh, it's in my opinion once in a while i'll get uh, a message or a comment from somebody who said wow well, you know i used to believe this and thank you so much uh you know you're Presentation showed me that I had been wrong in in thinking this, and it's it's now clear to me or whatever. And of course, I l- I like those comments. It's wonderful to be able to do that, but they are exceptionally rare.
0: I, I will say with your the JFK videos that you did, that definitely opened my eyes to uh, a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, and very well done uh, their videos. I highly recommend people to watch them or any of your videos for that matter. Um, I wanted to ask you this regarding this topic. Do you find that sometimes this focus or like people's focus on alternative history kind of hurts hurts the, um, the movement and it shifts focus from areas where we should be focusing on? And to uh, the subject of September 11th, I actually interviewed um, a guy who has a YouTube channel, Adam Fitzgerald. And he does research into September 11th. And this is kind of, it's kind of his stance is that, hey, there's like, let's, we need to set aside the, you know, the stuff with no planes or the buildings were taken down because there's actually stuff that we should be asking questions about. Like why, you know, why didn't we confront, uh, if we knew about the hijackers, how come we couldn't stop it? you know, and how come, how did they come into the country? And why was, you know, there was, uh, I I forget, Nawif Al-Hazmi was in Arizona in 1997. But, you know, when the FBI tried to bring it up, nobody really took a look into it. And the CIA and the FBI weren't really communicating. So he, his position is, why aren't we looking at these things? And we're focusing on these other things. And I don't know if you find that similarly in, other like historical videos or historical events that you know we've just mentioned is is there too much attention to like these alternative histories that it hurts like the actual truth and the focus in other areas?
1: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And and nine eleven is a great example. Um, I have not I've toyed with the idea of doing something related to nine eleven, but it's a it's a tricky area in part because. Uh, YouTube's content uh, restrictions treat 9-11 as a special case, and their rules about what you can do about it and what you can show are unclear and also inconsistent with the rest of the rules. So that's a different issue, but I think what you brought up is is exactly right. Um, One of the things about 9-11 that is, and this is mentioned, I did a video about, um, this is before uh my my real run of popularity began but a long time ago i did a video about was uh, bin laden a cia agent he wasn't um but that kind of that idea got into the public mind and it's like oh yeah the cia funded you know funded bin laden no they didn't it's more complicated than that um but one of the reasons, the probably the primary reason, I mean, most Americans, I think, don't really realize why 9/11 happened, what the strategic vision was. It wasn't, and part of this was because the narratives were the political narratives were spun after it. Oh, they did it because they hate our freedoms or you know, it's just nonsense, of course. Um, the, the strategic reason behind 9/11 was that uh, bin Laden, wanted to bait the United States into invading Afghanistan because he believed that it would be a quagmire. And since he thought that the uh, Soviet war in Afghanistan was the direct and proximate cause of the collapse of communism, he believed that another that the, getting the United States involved in a similar war would lead to the same kind of collapse of the United States. That was why he did it. Very few people understand that that's what the strategic reason was. So I think you're right. It's like well, while we're you know being distracted by ridiculous theories about how you know, oh the you know the plane was a, a hologram, or, you know, very few people have realized that like we responded, we the United States responded to 9/11 in exactly the way that Osama bin Laden wanted us to. It didn't have the results that he expected because he was not a very deep thinker in terms of geopolitics, a very shallow thinking. Bin Laden was not a smart man. I mean, he was was clever, but he wasn't very smart. But there's been very little discussion about the strategic implications of that, which I think is worth a discussion. Should we have invaded Afghanistan in 2001? You know, should we have stayed there for 20 years? No one's really talking about that. Uh, So I think that's a great example. Um, Just to, to... Link to something that is in a recent video I did, the Manson uh, case. I'm very interested, and you'll see in that video, I'm very interested in the narratives about uh, Manson and the end of the 60s. You know, what did it mean? And there's there lots of different aspects of this, Altamont and, you know, things like that. And the Woodstock generation and, and all of these things are, are caught up in uh, in that. A couple of years ago, there was a book that was written um examining uh or i would say asking a lot of questions i mean it wasn't really like a didn't really come to any conclusions but there were a lot of questions about was manson given drugs in prison was he part of the you know the uh, mk ultra program or whatever um and anything when there's any whiff of particularly a cia related conspiracy people will lob onto that as like that's the biggest thing about this. And I deliberately chose not to, I, I in fact even mentioned that book, I believe it's called Chaos, uh, is the name of the book. But I specifically mentioned in that video that no, I'm not I'm not gonna do this subject. It's fine, but it's it's outside the scope of, of what I want to do. And I think that's an example too, because as soon as people are very interested in conspiracies and so much of popular knowledge about history is completely infused with conspiracy theory so when you dangle a red flag like that in front of people you know oh the cia was involved in and just fill in the blank it doesn't matter what you know what event people are often going to kind of gravitate toward that subject and often miss the broader dimensions of what we're really talking about so i i agree with what you said that i think the focus on these kinds of things really does a uh a disservice to the reasoned understanding of history,
0: and particularly with with a video like the the JFK videos that you did. How difficult is it to discern from sources like you, like you mentioned? You read uh, Vincent Bugliosi's book, um, and I I know you consulted like the the Warren Commission's report. Uh, in in your making of the video, um, and I know those are like very good sources for researching this topic. But how do you, I guess? How do you identify what it, what is not like a good source? Like if you look at a a like a book, like um, uh, the JFK book, uh, best best evidence,
1: best evidence, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's it's often fairly obvious um the first thing and again this is this comes from my uh, my kind of history training when you look at a book the first thing you want to look at is the is the the footnotes and the endnotes first of all if it doesn't have them red flag unless it's unless it's designed as you know a capsule summary of it or a popular you know whatever but you have to take those in in a certain uh in a certain way but if but if, it, if it's actually purporting to be a history of something or it's presenting an argument about something, the first thing you do is you look at what sources did they cite. And if you look at if the sources are other similar books by other people who are saying much the same thing, eh, that's probably a bad source. The vast majority of JFK conspiracy books will cite other JFK conspiracy authors, or they'll cite the Warren Commission, which is bizarre that they all think the Warren Commission is complete crap, and yet that's the number one source that conspiracy theorists will cite, because that's the best repository of documentary knowledge about the assassination. Actually, the even better source on JFK is the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and particularly the appendices to that, not even the main report. Which very few people have even heard of the uh, House Select Committee, but even fewer people know that there's literally volumes of extremely exacting documentation on every aspect of the assassination. That was an invaluable source for my for my video. Um, a good uh, a good example. There's a book um, that I believe I mentioned in one of my Oak Island videos, and it's called. Uh, I think it's called Oak Island Secrets. It was published in the late 90s. One of these sort of fly-by-night publishers. And the author at least purports to cite sources. But if you look at the sources, they're all, you know, they're all gonzo type of uh, speculative fringe sources. This happens a lot. I have not done a video uh, involving... Uh, you know Nazi occultism but this is a big problem in that topic where every book that's written about you know the oh, the Nazis were practitioners of black magic and Hitler was trying to get his hands on this artifact or that artifact if you look at what they cite they'll cite other conspiracy authors so it's generally pretty easy to tell a good source from a bad one um, another way to do it is if you can look at what argument they're making you can usually tell if there's great leaps of logic that just don't add up or completely speculative you know best evidence is a great example because that book is essentially content free i mean there's really nothing in that book that's worth really anything uh, because of the great leaps of logic terrible sourcing terrible writing Um, one of the things that amazes me uh, is a, a conspiracy theory within the JFK milieu that's apparently very hot is the idea that a secret service agent uh, accidentally shot Kennedy when he was trying to return the fire from the school book depository. And there was a Gonzo book written in the early 90s that posited this theory. Uh, Bugliosi was so horrified by uh, just the ridiculousness of that claim that he dismisses it in a couple of paragraphs. Unfortunately, that particular claim has become super hot in the last 10 years or so and there's a lot of people who believe it it's nonsense of course it's absolute nonsense uh because what you have to do to get there is to explain away the proof that Oswald fired three shots because in order to make that work he only has to, he has to fire two he, he can't have fired a third shot but that amazes me that so many people believe in that story but the books that talk about that theory are, are you know terrible again they suffer from these exact problems that i've talked about but yet a lot of people are not able to discern a good source or a bad one and so we get into those kinds of weeds
0: mm-hmm. uh, shifting gears a little bit i i wanted to compliment you on another video that you did on the persian gulf War, and very very detailed um a an episode of history that I actually let me see. I missed actually. Cause I'm, I'm 30, I'm about to turn 32. And I, I was born after like slightly after this happened. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of talk to you about this, this war cause it seems like it's something that's kind of, at least to me, I don't, it's not in my purview all the time. Like I, I hear about World War II all the time. I hear about Vietnam a lot, obviously, with stuff that happened after uh, September 11th and the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan. But w- what happened in the early 90s, I just I feel like I, I don't hear about it as much today. And I was wondering, do you, do you feel the same? And is, is that kind of what inspired you to bring more attention to uh, this time period in our history?
1: Uh, yes, I, I do think that that is uh, very neglected. Um, one of the reasons I decided to do that video, and I had done previously, uh, that video is based on a lot of material that I created for an online course uh, that I is on my website, uh, seanmunger.com. and I guess it was about a oh, year, year and a half ago, I did a uh, an audio only uh, course about the Persian Gulf War. And so I use those scripts as sort of the basis uh, for my video. But the reason why I decided to do that uh, when I was doing my Ph.D. and in the kind of the later stages of it, I uh, not only did uh, teaching assistant duties for professors, but I also was assigned uh, toward the end of my program to teach some classes on my own as instructor of record. So one of the professors that I worked for had done a class on specifically on the Iraq war, meaning the one that started in 2003. I took the course. And then later, about two years later, uh, during the summer session, uh, this professor, they wanted to offer that course in the summer session, but this professor wasn't available. And so he suggested to the department, well, let's get Sean to teach that class. So I did that class, uh, which was very, very interesting and very fulfilling. A lot of veterans. Uh, ended up taking that course, uh, which was super interesting. But when I took the course that had, that was developed by my professor, he spent very little time on that first war. And I remember I I'm older than you, so I do remember it happening. And we were you know we were just riveted to the to the TV for weeks on end. So it seemed like a big deal at the time, and then uh, later it became less of a big deal. I'll explain why uh, in a little bit. But it, it, I thought that it kind of got short shrift. I, the professor that I worked for was great. I loved working for him. I worked for him many, many times. But I decided when I was going to do the course on my own that I was going to beef up that section, that I wanted to talk about that first war before going into the second one because they're so connected. And even then, I couldn't spend as much time on it as I thought it needed. So that's why I did the course on my website about it and then uh, translated that into the Persian Gulf War video. I think it is super important, and it, it relates to what was happening in the 80s, so there are relations also to the Iran-Contra story, and then of course what happened in the 90s, and 9-11 sort of brought an abrupt end to that. But I think why the Persian Gulf War is obscure is because the process of, there's, there's even really not very good history about it. There's very few, that was hard to find good sources, because there are very few uh, historical, like true, truly good, well-researched historical books about that specific conflict. And the reason for that is because when it happened in the early 90s, uh, there was a wave of books that came out within the first two years after it was over. And they've generally fell into two categories. One of them were memoirs by usually military commanders, people who were advanced in their career at the time it happened. They served in the Gulf. They commanded, you know, tank battalions or whatever. And then they retired in you know, 1992 or whatever. And then they wrote this book about the Gulf War. So there's the military story and those books are fine from a military perspective but they're incomprehensible to most people because you look at them and if you if you open a book about the Persian Gulf War and the first thing you see is a map with little squares representing like tank battalions or whatever and they'll always have acronyms and you look at the page and there's just like the the page is just a glow with all these capital letter military acronyms that's a certain genre of Persian Gulf War history, so that was the first wave, and, and and concurrent with that wave, then the other kind of people who wrote books about the Persian Gulf War in that first couple of years after it tended to be people who studied journalism and media, and the hot topic there was how was the war covered, the you know the Pentagon's process of embedding reporters, how did you know how did the story get. Uh, delivered and you know that so there was a there was a wave of scholarship about that. And then in the 90s like some there were some you know good books about it and, uh, some of them came out of the Arab world actually and were not translated into English. But the real it, it takes about at least about 10 years or so after a big historical event for the first really useful histories to 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 be published about it. And the problem with the Persian Gulf War was that 10 years after it, suddenly 9-11 happened. And then suddenly we were off to the races on the second Iraq War, which sort of stole all the, it sucked all the oxygen out of uh, scholarship or even a desire to study that first war. And then it became a package. And so now there, I mean, there's, now that we've been out of the Iraq War for you know, 12 years, you see there's now a lot of really good scholarship coming out about it. But it's now, that's now the focus is that second war, the first war is usually dealt with as kind of a prelude to it. So there's not really much about it specifically. And it was because the process of memorializing it and, and studying it historically was truncated by 9-11 and the second war and that also happened kind of politically and in the popular consciousness because suddenly once 9/11 happens and now we're arguing about well should we invade iraq to get rid of weapons of mass destruction or whatever no one's thinking about that first war it's like well that doesn't matter anymore now because now we've got this other set of circumstances and it's more recent and many more people were you know involved who have a recent memory of it whereas now iraq you know persian gulf war veterans are some you know starting to get into middle age and they're kind of becoming the way that Vietnam veterans were at the time of the Persian Gulf War. So there's this weird process of memorializing of history and of kind of fitting historical events into popular consciousness. And the Persian Gulf War was a special case because it, 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 that process was short-circuited prematurely, which is why it's so obscure. So long again, long answer to a very simple question, but I, uh, th- that, that's what I think about that.
0: One of the things that I uh, I found amazing from watching your video was how George H. W. Bush couldn't. It it seems like, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, like couldn't capitalize on the like vast um, like approval and you know just positive energy towards him to uh, get reelected in um, what was uh, 1992. Um, And I know you kind of went into that as well in your video, correct?
1: I did, yes. Kind of extensively, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Which then in 1992, uh, Bill Clinton gets elected. um, And then we have, you know, the rest of history from there. Um, Yeah, really well done and very, very detailed. Uh, Another aspect of that video, actually. And I wanted to get into this uh, was the climate aspect of the Persian Gulf War because uh, I know it relates to uh, your studies. Um, and I was wondering, can you explain just a little bit about uh, what you spoke about in uh, in that video about how the Persian Gulf War like affected climate from you know like just burning of the oil fields, um, etc., things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, there are a lot of connections I think between uh, the Persian Gulf War and uh, global warming, and uh, that there are some people that any mention of uh, of climate change in a video is a a red line for some people. It's like, oh, I'm stopping to watch right now. You know, so I've got a lot of comments about that. But uh, there is a deep, deep relationship there. Not least of all the fact that the strategic reasons why Kuwait mattered to the united states and the west was because of the ultimate accessibility of oil which is causing you know the burning of fossil fuels of course is causing climate change so there's a connection there um in history i often ask the questions and often encourage my students to ask not only why did this happen but why did it happen when it happened why didn't it happen 10 years earlier or 10 years later or whatever There's an interesting convergence in time. The uh, first um, report, the IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN sort of umbrella scientific organization studying global warming, their first report, which is their most important one, uh, they had been working on it since 1988, but it came out in July of 1990, exactly one month before Saddam Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. So there's an interesting convergence in time there. Uh, When I was working on, uh, I was working on a climate consulting project. um, And I had occasion to look at documents from the Bush, the first White House, principally involving uh, uh, John Sununu and some of other uh, Bush's advisors. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the video where they during the early part of 1990 they were anticipating the release of the IPCC report and Sununu who was a fairly notorious global warming denier attempted to negotiate with the IPCC to uh, soften the report and you know get rid of the catastrophic language and well can we water this down can we water that down and there are lots of memos and such in the the Bush the first White House that that go through the story of how he tried to engage the IPCC and get them to 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 double you know to to water down their conclusions, and when that that failed completely, <clears throat> IPCC report outraged Sununu. Bush couldn't you know Bush just didn't care. He, he he was not engaged on the issue whatsoever, but Sununu was absolutely outraged, and he was so bitter. for the rest of the time that Sununu was uh, in charge he was eventually cashiered uh, uh, about a year before the election but he was notoriously hostile to anything involving climate change and he basically turned the U.S. government's official policy on climate change from kind of a, a cautious engagement to total denial and that actually that the clinton administration did not really i mean they engaged with the issue a bit more but they didn't really reverse that sort of crystallization of denial as as sort of the main policy so i think that's a very important part of the story because that was happening at the exact same time <clears throat> that the uh, uh the diplomatic crisis before the war was ramping up and i mentioned in the video that The protest movement, there was kind of a nascent protest movement against the first Persian Gulf War. It didn't go anywhere because it was over so quickly. But the key slogan, the, the slogan that stuck was no blood for oil, basically. And that was a less compelling narrative for that protest movement than any of the narratives from the Vietnam era. Uh, and I mentioned this in the video that it's like, I mean, if if you're going to have a, a major protest movement against something, your message has to be very clear and it has to be very simple and very compelling. Vietnam had that message and the civil rights movement had that message. Very simple. You knew automatically what Dr. Martin Luther King wanted. You knew automatically what Tom Hayden wanted and Jane Fonda. It was clear. The protest movement against the Persian Gulf war as it was developing was not really very clear it had something to do with oil and it was more like well like the vietnam movement was about this war is not in our national interest let's get out because you know we're doing all these terrible things and it's it's not it's not worth it to us basically was kind of the 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 point at the at the gulf stage it was more like well this war is in our national interest but we wish it wasn't that's a that's a different message and maybe if if the war had gone on longer and the protest movement had gained more steam i wonder if uh climate change would have become sort of part of the message against the war it's like no let's not go fight for petroleum producing countries in the middle east let's abolish fossil fuels because we're gonna have to anyway you know uh so there is a connection there there are also, as you pointed out, more direct connections. The, um, uh, when Saddam retreated from Kuwait, he lit uh, something like 700 of, of the oil wells on fire, and that created a cloud of smoke. And there was some scientific concern that the smoke from burning oil wells would have a, a, an effect on the climate. And the people who raised that alarm were the same people in the scientific community who had, you know, 10 years earlier sounded the alarm about nuclear winter. Carl Sagan was uh, one of the spokespeople for this movement. And the uh, particularly Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher administrations, I talk a lot about Margaret Thatcher in my uh, Persian Gulf video, because you cannot tell the story of that conflict without it was, it was not the United States alone and British involvement. And it's particularly British politics because Thatcher was uh, deposed during that crisis. Um, that led to a whole other set of circumstances, but uh, both the Reagan and Thatcher administrations were notoriously hostile toward the scientific work on nuclear winter theory. And that hostility eventually resurfaced as hostility toward scientific research on climate change. And for much the same reasons, it threatened uh, you know, deeply seated interests in conservative governments. So I think there are a lot of connections there uh, that are worth talking about, and no one is talking about them. So that's what I think on that.
0: I I was reading to uh, the article that you wrote, and I forget the title of it right now, um, on that uh, storm that swept through New England um, in the uh, 1800s. It was like a Mm -hmm. gale storm. Um, And – you mentioned something in there about people in the past ha, kind of had this idea of that hey, we're all connected, like on this earth. And I, I wanted to ask you, do you think have humans, have we kind of always thought about the climate like, you know, people are thinking about today as far as uh, the impact on on the climate? Have Has that been a pervasive thought in in previous years?
1: Well, uh, yes, I mean, I I think that people have generally considered themselves considered human activity to be related to the climate. It's really only uh, The idea that, you know, well, human beings can not affect the climate that that's that's a denialist uh, trope that is fairly recent that that it's really that idea has only really been pushed Uh, as heavily as it has since the late 80s, basically, which was the kind of when climate denial was invented. Um, You know, people think that, oh, well, you know, climate change is, uh, it's a new thing, or it's, uh, and, and, but it, it was very well, it was not controversial until about 1989. Part of the reason why 1989 is because that's when George Bush I took office, and there were Uh, Petroleum and fossil fuel uh, industry interests who were targeting the Bush White House with communications that hoped to push them toward a denialist direction, and there was the first concerted effort to do that uh, was in about 1989. So the idea that oh we can't affect the climate that's a very recent idea. Previous to that, it was generally assumed that human beings and the climate were interrelated. One of the examples. that I give of this was, uh, if you look at Thomas Jefferson's note, notes on the state of Virginia, he talks about climate change. He talks about human-caused climate change. You know, Not a controversial idea in 1780. Um, in fact, in the 19th century, uh, people believed that human beings and climate were very closely related to the extent that, like, <clears throat> nations and civilizations in similar climate circumstances would develop similarly this idea is somewhat dangerous because of course it it later became a justification for colonialism uh and you know exploitation of africa and asia and that kind of thing but that that came that came later generally but those ideas were very mainstream and uh it it was not a controversial idea It, it really isn't a controversial idea today outside of Circles that are politically motivated to deny climate change, but uh, but yeah, I think that idea is very, very is very basic and finds a lot of expression in in history, in many different ways.
0: To um, kind of wrap things up, Sean, because I we've been going it's almost an hour and a half. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you get Do you get uh, people, uh, like pinging you for like suggestions on new videos? And, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, do you ever, do you ever think, uh, get topics from, you know, people suggesting and, and then also as another question, um, what I I know earlier you mentioned a video that you're working on, but any other, um, big deep dives that you have coming up?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'll take the, the first part of that. Uh, first, I do get suggestions all the time, um, some are very very good Uh, others you know are not so good or it's not that they're not good but they're not really kind of within my wheelhouse or something that i feel that i could do without becoming you know starting anew as an expert on the topic Um, often these suggestions sort of rise and fall based on what's in the news at any particular time I've had a couple of comments and, and requests for people to uh, do something on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, I got a very good suggestion uh, a couple of weeks ago from someone who was interested in a video about the Troubles in Northern Ireland, uh, which is one that I have considered doing. That's a very steep research and learning curve, so that's kind of what's daunting about that. Um, and there are people who uh, have some, you know, just kind of interesting sort of off the wall uh, suggestions, which uh, are often very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to do them, but uh, I do appreciate hearing from from people about, about those kinds of things. And, and, it, and it's great to hear because people are interested in the past. And one of the things that my long form videos, I think have shown, We talk about, oh, well, people's attention spans are so short or whatever. I don't think that's really true. I think people want my most successful videos are the super long ones. You know, the Persian Gulf War video is two and a half hours long. Uh, And there's people who've said that they've watched it like three times in a day. I mean, I can't even imagine that, but there are people who, who have said that kind of thing. And so that kind of amazes me that people really do have a desire to understand the deep context of history. I think because it's that kind of thing is dealt with so infrequently. Um, most vid- historical videos are, you know, ten to fifteen minutes long, and that's just not enough time. I think really to to do something in a really deep way. I have done videos of that length, but they tend to be more surface level. As to what I'm working on, um, this new uh, video that I'm in editing on, it's going to be out fairly soon. I'm sure it will be out by the time this interview goes up is, as I said, about the fall of the great monarchies in the World War I era. There's going to be a side video related to that, which is uh, an explanation of what we call the July crisis. That's uh, sort of how the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, that was the trigger, how that led to the outbreak of World War I about five weeks later. very complicated process, one of the most difficult things to explain in modern history. Um, So I thought that was worth sort of breaking out into its own video. So that's going to be dropping at the same time. Um, I'm also, next in the pipeline after that, uh, you saw the Manson video, which was titled Manson, a Geographic History. Um, And my approach there was to look at the Manson story, not as a narrative from beginning to end, but talking about the various geographic places within that story and how they fit together Uh, in an interesting way so my next video after fall of monarchies is going to be watergate a geographic history uh which is going to surprise some people because i think we're used to thinking of well watergate has nothing to do with geography it's just you know men in rooms talking and sometimes being tape recorded uh it's not that uh the and the the spark of this idea was a uh a uh article that i did on my blog about the history of the watergate site itself the place where the building uh was was eventually constructed in the early 60s uh which is connected to i mean there's a there's a residence there with apartments and that kind of thing ruth bader ginsburg lived there for decades but that's also connected to the office complex where the break-in occurred Um, but that site has an interesting history in itself, uh, it was a railroad site in the 19th century. Uh, it was a, a utility site in the early part of the 20th century. But if you just scratch the surface of the history of the Watergate site, you uncover a lot of really interesting connections. For example, one of the main, it appears that there's been some recent scholarship on this, but one of the underlying causes of Nixon's paranoia was. A fear that the fact that his campaign had negotiated secretly with the North Vietnamese uh, to uh, it was involving the uh, the election of 1968, and the Nixon administration did not want a bombing pause to occur right before the election. They had thought that that would uh, boomerang to their disfavor in the election, and so the Nixon administration had kind of secret connections. Uh, with North Vietnam to stretch out the peace talks that were going on at that time and the Johnson administration still in office found out at the time that that was going on they did not expose it for very complex reasons Uh, but uh, Nixon was apparently very paranoid that news of that incident would leak out during his presidency and his creation of the plumbers was in part to prevent those documents from being made public. Now, what's interesting about this story is that one of Nixon's secret envoys to the North Vietnamese, Madame Chenault, lived at guess what, the Watergate complex. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that that's just that's just random. Okay, I mean there's there's not a historical connection there other than something that happened to be caused by randomness. But isn't that an interesting story? And oh, that's yeah. not the only thread like that in the watergate story so that's why i'm interested to uh look at that Um, so that's what's coming up next after the fall of the dynasties
0: you know what's so funny i actually wrote down uh, a couple suggestions and watergate was one of my suggestions i was going to mention so that's so funny that you beat me right to it
1: (laughs) Yeah, and again, it was. uh, I I was working on it. I I had it in my head before this happened, but uh, I did receive a comment on one of my videos suggesting that I do Mm -hmm. watergate. So, I
0: I actually I wrote down two others. Um, One of them, you and you've probably you've probably gotten suggestions on uh, on these two. uh, The great uh, financial crisis of two thousand eight. as As well as the, uh, Bill Clinton's, um, impeachment trial and the, the Wincy scandal. Um, knowing what you've done with your other videos, I, I have no doubt you would make awesome videos regarding those topics. Um, I don't, has anybody ever suggested those to you?
1: Uh, yes, actually I have had suggestion of the uh, 2008 crisis. Um, I would have a little bit more competition in that space because I know that there have been some uh, some people on YouTube who've done some very interesting stuff on that. There's also there's a research curve on that as well, just because of the economics and uh, that sort of thing. I'm not you know an economist, uh, but uh, I guess I know enough to be dangerous on on that topic. Uh, Clinton and Lewinsky, I would love to do, and I have thought about doing it and have received. Suggestions uh, to do it. Um, it's again, it's not quite in the same category as nine eleven, but it's a little tricky from YouTube's content restrictions because they consider uh, uh, sexual assault to be a what they call a sensitive topic, and so there are certain content rules around that. That I, it's not undoable, but I would have to kind of navigate my way around. That and of course, as you know, there are very complex issues um, in in that scandal involving, you know, consent or meaningful consent or, uh, you know, Clinton has been credibly accused of uh, sexual assault in a number of other instances. Um, So that's a that's sort of a fraught uh, topic, but uh, that would not necessarily scare me off. (laughs) And it's a super interesting, uh, very, very interesting uh, story.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, I, something like that, uh, I was just a little too young to really know what was going on. But I do remember um, the events of 2008, the um, Lehman Brothers collapse, um, stock market crash. I, I do remember that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, again, I, I have no doubt that if you do choose to do a video on that, it would make for an awesome Time and I would watch it multiple, multiple times over. <laughs> Great. Well,
1: I, you know, I may, I may do it. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm, what I'm thinking, just even as you've been talking, is uh, focusing not so much on the, the nuts and bolts of the financial collapse, but kind of how it played out politically, because there's a lot of interesting stuff that was going on there with the presidential campaign and uh, kind of McCain's last hurrah and the whole Sarah Palin. Uh, issue and you know that kind of thing Uh, the surge Um, so yeah there's uh, that uh, that could be something I could do
0: well this has been a great conversation Sean Um, I've learned a ton it's been great talking to you Uh, just really quick before we go uh, for people that want to get in contact with you or reach you what are the best avenues to do that
1: uh, email is the best. Um, you, it's My email address is just sean at seanmunger.com. And my website is just simply seanmunger.com. Uh, and I do receive a lot of emails on kind of a daily basis. So if I don't get back to you right away, <laughs> uh, understand that uh, I, uh, I've received so much more attention over the last couple of months than I ever had before. So I'm still getting used to fielding you know, an inbox full of questions every morning. Um, uh, so I'm still navigating my way through that process. But but that is the best way to get uh, to get in touch with me. Uh, I do have a, a public Facebook page and an Instagram page. This um, was just kind of like posting stuff related to my to you know to my work. But um, my YouTube channel is kind of where most of the activity is going on at this point in time. Uh, but I also do have some courses online uh, that there's a kind of a grab bag of uh, classes and uh, you can sign up for uh, $5 a month and get access to there's one that I really, really like that I did a number of years ago and recorded. It was a uh, class on the Vietnam war. And you, if you just kind of sign up, you know, sign up for one month or two months and then can't, you know, go through what you want to go through and then cancel a lot of people do that. Um, So there's, you know, stuff uh, on there as well.
0: And I'll include links to li- links to uh, these websites, um, also your social media. I'll include it in the episode description for people to check out. Um, highly recommended. Again, thank you so much. I- I've learned a ton from your videos. And thanks for doing this. I really appreciate well, thank it. Thank uh, you. It was a pleasure. And for everybody else out there, uh, thank you very much for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Cheat Take care, everybody.